0: brightness of your dawning. And so now, Lord, we ask that as we um, study your word, um, study this book of Acts today, um, would you give us eyes to see Jesus as you have um, placed him for all the world to see? Would you give us eyes to see him as the light of the world, our own savior? And would you, as we behold Jesus, would you transform us into his likeness that we too might be shining lights in this dark and broken world. So we ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, does anybody remember, what have we done? What have we looked at in the last few weeks? We started out in September, looking at chapter 1. We began at the beginning of Acts, and we're now in chapter 4. What do you remember, anything you remember about anyone of the last few weeks? And what's, what's going on? What is going on in in Acts, in the book of Acts? What do we start out with?
1: Mainly it's the Holy Spirit and how it's empowering the, the apostles to yeah. heal and I mean, do miracles
0: and everything in the name of Jesus. Right. And it's, <laughs> that was a great summary. The Holy Spirit so specifically is the Spirit of God imparted, um, given out from heaven, because jesus is seated at the right hand of god he has been exalted he he rose from the dead he ascended into heaven he sits down at the right hand of the father and that's a place of honor and it's a place of lordship from there he reigns over all the earth even though he's no longer bodily present on earth so in his bodily absence from earth god is not going to leave his people without an advocate without a comforter remember as Jesus said in the upper room in John's Gospel that we looked at last year that um, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. And so this promise is fulfilled, and we see it fulfilled in chapter 2, right? Because chapter 1 we see Jesus is ascension, and he's up, up, and away, going, going, gone. They're looking at the sky, the disciples, and remember that an, an angel appears to them and says, don't look into the sky. He's going to come back. It will be okay. Basically, go go on um, back into Jerusalem and wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then we see in chapter two the Holy Spirit comes powerfully, mightily at that first Pentecost. And do you remember what? What are some ways that Luke describes? How is he describing how the Holy Spirit comes? What what are the different images and things um, that he says? There's wind. And what else is there? Tongues of fire, tongues of fire ha- sitting, and remember, they're sitting in the house. The wind comes and blows through the whole house. There's, um, there are tongues of fire sitting on their heads. And then what happens? Language. language. Tongues of language come out of their mouths. They literally start speaking in these native languages. And we're not, we're not sure how do they get out of the house, but somehow the house. is <laughs> They got shook out of the house. They're out on the street, and the crowd is hearing them speak in these languages. And the crowd marvels because the crowd is composed of Jews from all around the known world, as they had been dispersed at the exile. And these Jews from all around the known world, they hear them speaking in the language of their birth, the language they heard from the very moment of their birth. Not not in Hebrew, which was the language... um, for their religious instruction, just like for the Catholics, it's Latin. You know, They hear them speaking in their own heart language, the language that they know better than any other language, and they marvel at it. One other thing, too, about all this, um, the language that Luke uses, he talks about a wind, talks about fire. Um, then there's also this language of the Holy Spirit being poured out like liquid. Um, and I always think of the Holy Spirit as liquid grace. You know, God's love made tangibly manifest to us, flowing down, pouring out upon us, as it says in chapter 2, this liquid love of God poured out upon those who uh, believe in Jesus. So um, that language of pouring out, all of this language is language of analogy. Do you remember what analogies are? I remember them from the SATs. I didn't have to take the ACTs because I was in the north, but... um, the, I don't So I don't know if there are analogies on the uh, ACTs. Does anybody? There are. Donna knows. Remember. You remember. <laughs> and do you remember what an analogy? Can you describe to us what an analogy? It's, maybe it's a comparison.
1: And a, visual.
0: a comparison, and it's a very tangible visual. Usually it's a visual one. Those were the easier ones for me. The more abstract ones, I was like, okay. Um, and you're right, Mary Kay uses like or as. Is that you? Or K? K, Kay. Kay or Mary Kay? like or as. <laughs> I remember them, too, being like, this is to this as that is to that. And um, so this language of analogy, Luke is a pr- trying to describe something that is indescribable. And that is the way that the, the, all of the prophets in the Old Testament, were try- they would try to explain, they would see this vision of God, or they would see the very presence of God, like Ezekiel seeing the chariot of God and he, has, he doesn't even know how to describe what he's seeing because it is so other than um, what he knows. And that's a great uh, understanding for God's transcendence, his otherness. We think about his nearness to us and his farness from us. I even go back to Sesame Street in the very language of
1: near Muppets
0: singing, near Far and somehow that ingrained in my memory. Did you ever see that sketch? I know they're they're so cute and they're so expressive, and they really help kids learn things like near and far. But I go back to that when I think of these two big theological terms of God's transcendence and His <coughs> imminence, and this is these are characteristics of God that we see all throughout the uh, the Bible. That God is both transcendent; He is far from us. He is far from creation because he, he created cre- all of us, um, and yet his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the ho- heavens are from the earth, so are his ways from our ways. He is so different in other because he is so holy. And we in our fallenness, post-Eden, we can't even comprehend that holiness because it's so different than what we know. We live in a broken world. And um, there's something about our brokenness that um, we don't even know when it's operating on us. And that's what, that's what's kind of sad. If you've ever had a moment where you look back and you think um, upon a different event in your life and you say, wow, I was really selfish when I did that. I had no idea at the time that I was operating out of my own selfishness. But now in hindsight, I look back and I see that. And it's very humbling, isn't it, to realize, wow, I didn't know it at the time. And so that's a prayer of mine. Lord, I don't know if I'm operating out of pride or selfishness or some kind of besetting sin that I can't even see because it's so close to me. It's so right in my line of vision that I'm so used to seeing it that I don't realize that it's blocking my vision or blocking my ability to serve you. So we think about that transcendence of God. His holiness is so other. He is not tainted at all by any kind of sin or evil. He is so good. And then also in his ability. He's sovereign, he's omniscient, all-knowing, he's all-powerful, uh, omnipotent, he is eternal, and we are finite. So all of these different things, God is far from us. When we think about that, that that transcendence and that farness of God was manifested for the people of Israel in the temple. Remember, in the temple there was that holiest place where God's own presence um, resided. And Ezekiel remembers seeing God's presence lift, presence lift up off of the temple and depart from the temple as judgment upon the people of Israel. That there, um, in that very, that space called the holy of holies, that there was where God was present among His people in all of His holiness. But could they just walk in there, walk into that room? No. Remember that that the blood of the um, atoning sacrifices was what cleansed the priests of the people of Israel so that they could enter into that holy of holies, so that they could enter into the very presence of God in all of his holiness and sovereignty and transcendence. That um, atoning sacrifice allowed them to enter into that holiest place, into the presence of a holy God. So God is transcendent. He is far, but he really wants to be in relationship with us and in relationship with his people. And so that's his nearness, that God comes down. He makes himself near to us and available to us. He, makes him, he made himself available in a very concentrated way, in a very specific way for the people of Israel through that holy of holies and being in his presence and coming into his presence through the atoning sacrifice. And then he makes himself available to us in Jesus, right? Because in Jesus, and we see this, John's Gospel is so good at this in chapter 1, love comes down the eternal word is made flesh and he dwells among us. So God comes down, comes near to us in Jesus Christ as though the very presence of God in all of his holiness is now manifested not in the tabernacle tent or or then the temple that housed God's very presence for the ancient people of Israel, but now God's presence is manifest in Jesus Christ as though all of his holiness, all of his eternity, all of his omniscience is now housed within the, um, the flesh of Jesus Christ, within the tent of his very being and his very body. So he is the eternal word made flesh. God comes down in love for us. And then through Jesus, he brings us back into relationship with us. Hebrews talks about Jesus um, entering into the holy place in the heaven, um, that by the blood of Jesus, the way is paved for us as an unholy people, To be present in the presence of a holy God without fear or trembling, without judgment, without smiting, without destruction, um, but with, um, with rest and with peace with him. We are at peace with God because of Jesus. So we are near to him and yet God will not come down and dwell on earth finally until the last. We look at Revelation 21 and 22 and the new Jerusalem descends. And it says, from that point on, from the point of Jesus' return and the descent of the new Jerusalem, from that point on, God will dwell in the midst of humanity forever, eternally. Um, And the light of the Lamb will be the light of the city of God here on earth. Heaven and earth will be finally merged once and for all. But in anticipation of that day, and because of all that Jesus has done, then in this interim period, God delights to send upon the third, Send upon us the third person of the Trinity. He is made manifest to us in in the person of the Holy Spirit, in the work of the Holy Spirit. So God is far, but he delights to come near. He's come near to us in Jesus Christ and brought us near to him. And then in Jesus' bodily absence, he sends the Holy Spirit to continue to draw us and keep us near to to God, um, to um, fill us with the very presence of God um, so that we might be lights to a broken world. So any question about that? That was a little biblical theology on God's presence, his nearness, his farness. Sorry, I wasn't really planning on doing that. Yeah, Mary Kay. I just
1: know pleasure, make some. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
0: there's always one in the wheelhouse or, or ten. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately... Um, um, so that nearness, we are near to God because of the Holy Spirit. And we see at Pentecost here in chapter 2, God pours out his Holy Spirit on, remember this, the characteristics, and I remember, Lenora, you talked to us about the characteristics of um, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit based on Joel chapter 2. Um, and Peter is interpreting the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in light of chapter 2. And he's pointing back to Jesus and saying, this is the promised Holy Spirit therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in him. And so he's using the sign of the Holy Spirit in their midst, um, at work in their midst, to point back and say, thus, believe in Jesus. And um, do you remember from Joel 2 what we said about what you said? Well, I
1: I remember two things. Yes. That's one, the church is the children, the people of God. Mm -hmm.
0: Isn't that a beautiful quote right there? Yeah, yeah uh, it's
1: true. It's great. And then yeah. Down here, this matter of all. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was very
0: interesting, yes. And you brought that up. Do you remember when we were looking no, at chapter two? Well, good well, <laughs> but you know it so well that you're bringing it up again. Mm-hmm. Let's just point that out. So tell us some more about that all. Oh all,
1: well it's just the whole world.
0: The promise of God is for all people, and this was one of the greatest challenges of the early church because they—they were the early church was all the church right now in chapter four of Acts—it's all Jewish. This is right now. This is a subset within Judaism. Christianity is a subset within Judaism, and so for them to even wrap their minds, they believe that only the Jewish people were the chosen people of God, and that's what the Hebrew Bible bears witness to. All of Old Testament scripture talks about the choosing and, uh, of Abraham and his offspring, and specifically the offspring of Jacob. And then not only of Jacob, who's also called Israel, but um, that the promise of God would be fulfilled through Jacob's offspring, Judah. And Judah is the ancestor of King David. And King David is the ancestor, of course, of Jesus. And so this is what the early church was realizing was that the promise made to Abraham by God in chapter 12 of Genesis that he would be a blessing um, to all the families and all the nations of the earth. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And so they're starting to try to wrap their minds around this, that this is for all people. And so when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Peter's sermon in chapter, chapter 2, he quotes Joel to, to describe this pouring out of the Holy Spirit to say that, um, that the Holy Spirit was promised to be poured out by um, the Lord promises this through the prophet Joel that it would be poured out upon all flesh. And he goes through these different categories, men and women, young men and old men, so gender, age, and then um, on servants as well as those who didn't, have, who didn't need to serve anyone, the, on the wealthy and the poor alike regardless of status, regardless of gender, regardless of age, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And this is a new thing because in in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit only poured out to empower mightily specific people, kings, prophets, priests, and then that one artist that we talked about, Bezalel. So now this universality of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is promised, and it's made manifest in their midst. But there is one qualifying factor. Is the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh? All, all, all? Or is there um, something about um, these disciples in particular that the, that means the Holy Spirit is poured out on them? Any thoughts about that? Well, there is. It's available to all, but, yeah, Liz?
1: They claim
0: him as the Lord. Right. Yeah, for those who accept Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit is available to us. The Holy Spirit, and Paul talks about this in his letters, so we'll look at that next year. But he talks about this in his letters, that the Holy Spirit is um, the inheritance, um, a a guarantee of the inheritance of the saints. That the Holy Spirit, as amazing as the works and deeds of the Holy Spirit are in our midst, as amazing as all of that is, and it's truly amazing, we're going to look again at them talking about the signs and wonders and miracles that happen in their midst, but all of that amazement is really just the down payment, the deposit on what exists for us eternally as we are in relationship with our Lord following our death, following the return of Jesus Christ, when we are once and for all united um, for all time with God the Father. Um, So the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a down payment on what is to come. So just going back to the structure, one of the things that's really interesting, and we talked about this last week, was we looked at the structure of chapter 2 and then of chapters 3 and 4, and we saw that there is a miraculous event and then what happens after the miraculous event in both both cases? In chapter 2, it was Pentecost, the miraculous event of the downpour, uh, downpour of the Holy Spirit, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, it was the healing, remember? Yes, that's right. There is this response. There's this miracle. And then following that, there is this sharing and fellowship. And in between them, what happens is Peter gets up on, on, in front of everyone and starts explaining what's happening. And he interprets what's what's happening in two ways. First of all, he interprets it. Number one, in light of Jesus Christ, he is inter- the whole time he's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, this miraculous stuff that you see here, it's all about Jesus. It's not about this. Look beyond this sign and this miracle and look to Jesus. And um, he is the one by whom... Um, you put you know in whom you put your faith and your trust it's by his name as he says it in chapter three that this man the lame man is healed by the name of jesus so he's spotlighting jesus that's the first thing and the second thing that peter's doing in his sermons is he is quoting the old testament he is quoting the prophets in the psalms he quotes deuteronomy in chapter three he quotes um... refers to genesis twelve he is quoting old testament scripture as a way of reinforcing and supporting his argument, as a way of proving, see, Jesus really is the Messiah, the expected one, and you know, he was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. And now the Holy Spirit is poured out. So he is um, supporting his argument from Scripture and using Scripture to um, draw people to look to Jesus and be saved. Um, So one other thing within this context, remember we talked, and I just... Tipped my hat to it about the name of Jesus. That um, do you remember in chapter three? How does Peter talk about the name of Jesus? And what does he, for example, first off, what does he say to the man who was lame? Stand up. In the name
1: of Jesus Christ of
0: Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Rise up and walk. Yeah, stand up. Rise up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk. And this wonderful miracle. Yeah. Were you, you going to add something, Gina? Well, um, you said that Jesus in Hebrew means God's name. Yes. Yeshua. God saves. And so it's sort of like the name of Jesus. Remember, it's not magical. But the the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. And the power in the name of Jesus comes from the person and work of Jesus. That when we pray in Jesus' name and we close pretty much every prayer in the name of Jesus, or I'll say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you get Jesus' name in there and the whole, uh, you know, referencing all three members of the Trinity. But in the name of Jesus, there's power in the name of Jesus because we're pointing to God's mercy and his grace extended to his people in need um, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's theological shorthand. And when we petition God, we're saying, You have extended your grace to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven now. We know this. And so it's on this basis that we're asking you for something else. We're saying, Lord, have mercy again. You whose quality is always to have mercy. We say that in in our um, Uh, prayer of humble access. Whose property is always to have mercy. And that is the basis for our petition. We're asking for something more because we're looking back on God's past faithfulness made manifest to us in Jesus Christ. So there is power in the name of Jesus. Any other thoughts about that? Because we're going to see more about that this week um, in chapter 4. We're going to have to read it soon because I'm running out of time. Um, One other thought, the Sadducees. Does anybody remember from the Gospels who are the Sadducees? We have... um, Within the religious leadership of Israel, we have Sadducees. What are the other groups of religious? Pharisees. 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 This is a sad marker. Who else? So Levites. Levites. Yeah. Yeah, very Kay.
1: And the scribes and the.
0: Yeah.
1: The scribes and the. Yeah,
0: scribes. There's one more.
1: Usually
0: they say the scribes and the Pharisees. Yeah. And um, they also say elders. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'll also say high priests. Or priestly family. Um, and then, but there's another word used for the council of Israel. Do you remember this? About the council? Remember when Jesus is brought before the re- religious leaders. Do you remember the, the name for the religion? This is, I know, this is a Bible trivia Amen. moment. Sanhedrin. Yeah. Bravo. Oh, I want you on my Bible trivia team.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, now
0: let's you, Yeah, watch, you were. And the way the Gospels talks about the religious leadership of Israel in the first century harkens back to prior times. So the Sanhedrin is um, 70, or some people say 71. I don't know which one it is, and I can't see why people say different numbers. Seventy leaders. Do you remember in Exodus when um, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law and and God makes the covenant with the people of Israel? He brings up 70 of the leaders of the people of Israel and they sit down on the mountain and they eat, they eat with Yahweh. They have a big feast. And the 70 leaders were leaders that remember Moses' father-in-law had advised him um, to stop doing so much work and to um, give part of the spirit of God that rested on him to these leaders so that they could lead the people of Israel on Moses's behalf so that the full burden of the whole people of Israel and remember that Moses in the prophets of old, Moses was not just a prophet, he was also like a political leader, a military leader, he was judge if there was a dispute, it came before him. That's a lot of work, that's three branches of government at least plus religion on top. So he i mean—he was weighed down with all of this responsibility and Jethro said, you know, this is too much, why don't you just call in other leaders to help you and trust that um, the Lord will work through them as well. Oh, good idea, right? So he brought in 70 other leaders and they go up on the mountain with him and eat with the Lord um, and feast with the Lord. And so that is the tradition behind the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 leaders in Jerusalem and they ruled in not only, remember that there's no separation of church and state, we have to remember back to a time before that because it's such a part of our mentality in 21st century America. There was no separation of church and state. They were married together. So the religious leaders were also political leaders. And they had their own army, if you could believe it. Not really an army, but they had... I, I kind of liken them to mall cops in the temple. They had
1: <laughs>
0: some authority, but not a wide authority. That's the worst kind, because then someone feels really important, way more important than they are. Um, so the temple guards um, were their own little...
1: Uh, police force. Well, but the w- 70 see God when they went up? I thought nobody could see God for
0: Moses. It's really vague in Exodus. They must not have seen God face to face, but you get this sense that they're there with him. It's, it's really an interesting passage and I've forgotten the reference and I wasn't expecting to refer to it, so I'm sorry. But it's in Exodus, I want to say it's 26 but we can find it afterwards if you want to really find it. So anyway, the Sanhedrin 70 elders, leaders, made up of different political groups now in the first century. And these political groups had different theological opinions, and they had different endorsements from Rome. Because remember, Rome is ruling over over Palestine and over the people of Israel, which they hate. But there it is. And so these 70 could only rule at the approval of Rome. And so there are some who are closer in um, relationship with Rome who receive that collaboration and that approval of Rome. And those are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are aristocratic. They are upper class, wealthy, educated. They they were composed um, of the families of the Levites because remember that the Levites are descended from Aaron and they were the only families that could be high priests or priests at all. Um, according to the Mosaic Law. But one of the problems was sometimes this, the Sadducees included other clans sometimes besides just the Levites, and that was a real problem. In the first century, they were, other people were upset, of course, because they felt like it was breaking the law that some other people were doing things in the temple they shouldn't have been doing because they weren't Levites. But yes, there were Levites in this group, but what the um, Gospels tell us is that this group was composed of high priests, and elders. Elders would have been clan leaders, um, the patriarchs and papas of the families all meeting together. The Pharisees were a little bit different. The Pharisees were more closely associated with scribes. And the Pharisees were rabbis and teachers. And so the rabbinic tradition within Judaism drew out from this Pharisaic group. And they were actually really strongly religious. They really knew the Mosaic Law. They taught from the Mosaic Law. They helped enforce the Mosaic Law. They were educated, but not always of a high class. Um, they were educated, and they taught in the temple. They taught in the synagogues. Um, they had leadership and authority because of their education and because they knew the Mosaic Law. And very often in the Gospels, what you see is the Pharisees opposing Jesus, asking Jesus difficult questions, and then and trying to trip him up a little bit. Um, and so Jesus is engaging most with the Pharisees. But Jesus is most like the Pharisees in his teaching, which is interesting. That the, theologi- he's theologically theologi- closer to them because he knows the Bible way better than some of these other leaders. Well,
1: that the not the and that's
0: what we're getting to. That's right, and we're going to see that later on in Acts. Within this council, there's a big division about the resurrection. And so what we're going to see and when we read today is that the Sadducees are making big trouble for Peter and John in particular because they're preaching about the resurrection. Okay?
1: The, Pharisee, the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they did. They did.
0: They, did in, they did believe in the resurrection. Yep. And one, of the, one thought behind this is these were more upper class. And these were more um, lower class and identified, they, they had their finger on the pulse of the poor, especially. They knew more about what was going on with the people. Um, and when you have a really rough life, it's true that you're looking more towards um, the resurrection and hope for an afterlife. Um, and so for the Sadducees, they had a much more comfortable life, and um, the resurrection was not necessarily a priority for them. And they also believed, as far as the Messiah was concerned, the Pharisees are still looking for um, the Messiah. In the first century, they did not believe the Messiah had come,
1: mm-hmm. but yet they believed in the resurrection. How
0: strange Isn't that interesting? They believed in the resurrection, and they were still waiting for the Messiah. But the Sadducees believed that the Messiah had already come during the Maccabean period. They thought, "This is it. We're living the golden age. We've, the Messiah has come. We are in power." This is great. We don't need an afterlife. I
1: we don't need them as a... I don't know. I I Mary and Joseph was, were Pharisees.
0: Well, no, because they, they weren't educated. Um, they, they were not educated, so they were not of one of these classes. These were just the ruling classes. Mary and Joseph, from all accounts, we can tell they were really poor. Um, they were, Joseph was a descendant of David. So he wouldn't have been, he definitely would, would not like, you know, they were not of the priestly family. But we do read that Zechariah and Elizabeth were of the priestly family. And so John the Baptist is of a priestly family, which is interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: That's one of
1: the yes.
0: was I know. Uh, right, I know. But they still trace parentage through... The Father, it, it, you're right, it is a little bit of a, but we're not going to go into that right now, or otherwise we'll get down that rabbit hole. Um, Mary Kay, did you want to? Okay. Well, I've gone down enough rabbit holes myself, so let's start reading chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Did you have a question, Donna? Yeah, please.
1: you think the was?
0: You know, my reading did not clarify that for they me. Thought that they thought that the Messiah, the expected anointed king had already come, um, the one that they were waiting for to deliver them. Because during the Maccabean period, there was a deliverance of the people of Israel. Um, that remember that there was Antiochus, uh, uh, his name is Antiochus Epiphany. His name is weird. Okay. He's this Greek king, he was one of the four um, inheritors of the empire of Alexander the Great, because Alexander the Great didn't have any male offspring that would take over the empire for him. So he divided up his huge empire into four kingdoms and put four of his generals in charge of them. And so the one who ruled over Palestine, and this is in the period between the intertestamental period, between the writing of Malachi and the coming of um, Jesus, between that period during this time, basically um, Jerusalem was ruled by the Greeks and this particular general king came in and just took Did all sorts of horrible things in Jerusalem, and the number one horrible thing that he did, which is called the abomination, the of um, desolation that causes abomination, or the abomination that causes desolation—that's what it's called. Excuse me. In Daniel, and Daniel prophesies about it. What they, what happened was this general came in. Can you imagine how horrible this is? He came in and on the altar, in the temple, in Solomon's temple, he sacrificed a pig which was an unclean animal for the Jews. So he did the most horrible thing. He he meant to desecrate the Jewish temple. And they were so horrified that he did this. And so during the Maccabean period, there was this family, the Maccabees, that um, revolted against his rule. And there was some measure of liberation and religious freedom for the Jews, even under that rule, because of this rebellion. Does that help? Yes,
1: I'm trying, and if
0: I've gotten any of those details wrong, I apologize in advance, but that's my understanding. Any other questions before we read? We better read. It's it's 10 o'clock. Here we go. Okay. (laughs) Let's read. I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll keep going Um, all the way through 31. And as they were speaking, and they as Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening.
1: But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so that the number of believers totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Anna, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the island. And when they accepted him in the, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been doing it. That's okay.
0: Yeah, it's right in the middle of a sentence too, so it'll be different. But start at ten, verse ten. Then
1: know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this king stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the caster. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by whom we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were, in school, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the sentient room, and they conferred together. Oh, this is Leslie. Yeah. No, keep going, Lenore. No, no, it's fine. for your father so they called him and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them, praise God for what has happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing had been performed was more than forty years old. Mm -hmm. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. But when they heard that, they raised their voice to God and joined forward and said, Lord, you are God, and you have in there and you hear and all that is in them." Why do the nations rage and the peoples flock in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate and together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did not. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider this matter and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they name was shaken, and they were all filled. with
0: Holy Spirit and close the word of God we hear bookends right we hear boldness at the beginning and prayer a prayer for boldness at the end they're asking for what they already have but they're asking for it in greater measure because this is the first time that we hear about um, the Christian church being recognized as something other than what was being preached Um in the temples and in the, it, to the Jewish people. This is the first time that there is a public recognition of that's something different and that there is this sense of identity for those who believe in Jesus. And this sense of identity comes about through persecution, right? So Peter and John are arrested and because the council was not going to meet at night even even though they met at night to deal with Jesus, they instead, they're meeting, they're putting them in jail and meeting with them the next morning. And what happens? Can you imagine Peter and John? And in John's gospel, we know that Peter was very, he was in the courtyard when Jesus was arrested and being tried by the exact same 70 men. It's the same court. And now Peter and John are standing before the same set of judges that condemned Jesus to death. And there they are. Can you imagine how nervous they must have felt? Can you imagine standing before that group of people who had condemned their Lord to crucifixion? Kind of the worst fate imaginable, right? So there they are. And Peter was so close um, the first time. Remember that he was in the courtyard while Jesus was being tried. And um, the juxtaposition of Jesus' faithful witness um, of who he is before the Sanhedrin that night before his death is contrasted with Peter, who Peter, three times, though he is professing he will follow Jesus to the ends of the earth, three times he denies Jesus. He's afraid of the servant girl in the courtyard, never mind the council of 70 leaders. John in his gospel tells us that John, the same John that's here, John the evangelist, was also nearby. We think that John, the beloved disciple, was also in that same house or structure, wherever it was, where the Sanhedrin was meeting by night secretively to um, condemn Jesus, to pass judgment on Jesus. So can you imagine? There they are, and yet the contrast is so different. It is like night and day. Who is this man, Peter, who is getting up and so boldly professing who Jesus is? His boldness is a complete miracle, isn't it? When we know what we know about Peter, naturally we see Peter now speaking out boldly in front of those who hold his fate in their hands—or so it would seem. But he's trusting in the Lord. He's trusting that God, in fact, holds his fate in His hands. And um, so, how much isn't that clear? It's the Holy Spirit empowering. Yeah. Okay. Holy Spirit Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did. It says
1: boldness is not reckless and pulping. No. Boldness courage to press on even uh,
0: through our fears and do what we know is right. Isn't that amazing? That boldness and courage to press on, that's a great way of wording it, Even in, to do what's right, even in the midst of our fears. Um, and the fear here is that, that Jesus' fate would be their fate as well. But see in verse 13, the council sees the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceive. That They were uneducated common men and they are astonished. And they recognize that they had been with Jesus. They say, oh yeah, we think we did see you around with Jesus. uh Uh-oh, what's going to happen? But they see the boldness of these men and they marvel. um, Because they know, not only are they bold, but they teach with authority from Scripture. It's not that they are totally uneducated, but they didn't go to rabbi school. They hadn't been to seminary. And yet there they are, boldly teaching from Scripture. And so what is the so they're bold and in the content of what Peter says we see again the same theme. Number one, the spotlight is on Jesus, not on this miracle, and not on they themselves. They say it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And then they're pushing for a decision on the part of the leaders. They they say, you know, Jesus was the one that you crucified, you rejected him, and yet God has honored him. He's contrasting um, the dishonor that they've um, given to Jesus with the honor that Jesus has from God. So he's speaking boldly, and then he supports his statements with Old Testament scripture. So this um, statement that he says in in chapter 4, verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. Given among men by which we must be saved. Again, that uniqueness of Jesus' name, and Jesus is the only Savior. He is the one that we look to um, in faith. So, Peter uses a couple of different Old Testament passages to support his statement here. He uses Psalm 118.22, 22, which says, and I'm reading it right from my, my Bible The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then also from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And there it says, "Behold, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line." Um, and I won't go on on that one, but he talks about this cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. He is the cornerstone of this new age of salvation through faith in his name. And w- the basic content of using these passages that ter- Peter is trying to convey is that he's saying, though you rejected him, you, the builders, all of these people who were leaders of Israel said, no, Jesus is not the Messiah, and handed him over to be crucified. Though the builders of the house of Israel. Those who were in leadership are the builders of this house. And The house is alluding to the temple but it's talking about the whole people of God being like a house. And The builders of the house are those leaders, the under shepherds as Ezekiel calls them, the shepherds of his people, of God's people, put there as stewards for God's own leadership. They um, were unfaithful in rejecting Jesus even though God knew ahead of time that this would happen and it's according to his plan. Even so, they're responsible for their actions in rejecting Jesus. And though Jesus was rejected, that stone that they stumble over, and this is an interesting, there are a lot of stone passages that are used, and um, Peter will bring them all together again in 1 Peter 2. We're not going to look at all these New Testament passages because I'm running out of time, but I put on there 1 Peter chapter 2, and that is a great passage for you to read because it's a place where all of these discussions of the stone Stone, Jesus as this stone, are brought back together and where we as Christians are understood to be living stones being built up into a new house of God, this new people of God centered around Jesus, founded upon Jesus. So Jesus is the cornerstone, that stone that would um, decide how the walls of a building were going to be. There's a stone at the base of the building, of course, in the foundation that was strong. It had to be of a strong rock. It had to be cut in such a way that it really was 90 degrees because um, if it wasn't square, 90 degrees three times, then the walls would not be straight, the roof would not be straight, the floors would not be straight. Um, So it's the most important stone in the entire building, the stone upon which everything else is built. And so Peter, in pointing to Jesus as the cornerstone, he's saying, put your trust in him. Um, he is the most important thing. He is the Savior. Um, he is the one by whom this man has been healed and saved from this affliction of his crippling um, birth defect. So then when, um, when they push back and they say, well, we, we can't say anything, they're between a rock and a hard place. Do you like my pun? <laughs> they're caught between a rock and a hard place, these leaders, because they can't deny... That a miracle was done, because the people all know they see the evidence of the miracle. They can't deny it, and they can't actually arrest Peter. They can't do anything to Peter and John because the people would get so upset. So their hand is being forced. They can't do anything, and so this sort of last-ditch effort is pretty impotent. They just say to them, "Well, don't, don't do it any, don't do it again, don't say in Jesus' name anything, don't preach in His name, don't do any more miracles." And what does Peter say? His Boldness is unparalleled. He stands up. He—it's not, and it's not in this defiance. It's not in human defiance. He is just saying, "I must obey God rather than you," and this is um, this is in concert with Romans 13, obeying God um, even though earthly authorities might disobey God. And we see this with um, those who are being persecuted for their faith now in the Middle East. Um, there's an earthly presence that's saying, um, "Convert." or die, convert or be persecuted. And in their faithfulness to Jesus, they're standing and saying, we can't do that. We can't deny Jesus. Um, And so that's exactly what Peter and John are doing in their boldness. They're saying, we can't be silent. How could we be silent about Jesus? It's by him that we have life. Good news cannot be contained. Um, And so that's one of those things when our lives have been totally transformed by the good news of the gospel. We can't keep silent. Can we? And so we ask for more boldness, but even before we ask for boldness, I would say we ask, Lord, let our lives be so overflowing with that sense of joy at your intervention in my life, at your good news in my life through Jesus that I cannot keep silent, that everyone in my life knows exactly what I think about you and exactly what I feel about you. Um, there's one story in Layton family lore. One of my sister, both of my sisters go to my parents' church. And one of my sisters was so overjoyed to find out that she was expecting, I think it was their second or their third child, and she made the mistake of telling my father. My dad's a priest. He's the rector at that parish. So she told him she was so, you know, she told my parents. She was very excited. And, you know, the implication was this is not public knowledge yet. It's very early on. We're not telling anyone, but we're really excited. The next Sunday, my dad Told the whole congregation. I don't think he'd really thought he was going to. It was just that the good news was bubbling over in him. He could not keep silent about the good news. And isn't that true? That good news just bubbles out and bubbles over into um, what we say and what we proclaim. So let's pray right now. Mm -hmm. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask that you would um, give us that sure and certain sense of your own grace towards us um, through your death and your resurrection. And I ask, Lord, would you cause that good news within us to bubble up and to overflow out? um, That we too might speak with boldness, just like Peter and John, and proclaim all it is that you have done for us. Give us that strength and that courage to bear witness to those in our lives who might not know you. Um, Give us that courage to stand strong despite um, any opposition that we might feel here. And even so, Lord, as we are so comfortable in the West and we Um, are able to have this religious freedom that is so costly, so um, purchased so preciously and yet is uh, not present in so many parts of the world. Give strength and courage and great boldness we ask to our brothers and sisters around the world who are uh, in fear of their lives, in fear of their livelihood, in fear of their safety um, because they profess your name and faith in your name. Strengthen them and give them courage. Lord, our needs here seem so pale in comparison, and so we ask, have mercy on them, Lord. Um, give us eyes to see others in need, we ask. Strengthen our brothers and sisters. So all of this we ask in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.